Dear diary, why does no one understand me? P.S. I am not mad. Listen, I came here to learn all about the new science, about galvanism, Franklin's experiments, the combination of modern disciplines with ancient knowledge in an attempt to protect and create. To create what? Geneva, I warn you, what you are suggesting is not only illegal, it is immoral. Rubbish! Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Best way to cheat death will be to create life. We can replace one part of a human being, we can replace every part. And if we can do that, we can design a life. It's alive. Even if it were possible. Can you imagine for one second that there wouldn't be a terrible price to pay? Evil will have its revenge. What's out there? As part of our throwback series, today we'll be looking at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, starring Kenneth Branagh, Helena Bonham Carter, Ian Holm, and Robert De Niro, directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's alive! The podcast is alive! It's Galley in Glasgow. <laughs> and it's Devlin in London. So... Welcome to the first episode, Indeed. Frankenstein. Somewhat ironic, I would say, Devlin, because we basically cobbled together this podcast out of bits of raw material. Indeed, indeed, and also that uh, you know those 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 bits were stolen from a graveyard of bad jokes. So, Devlin, do you want to explain why we're doing Frankenstein 1994? Well, we are doing Frankenstein 1994 because, as we have discussed. Previously, uh, we're here to unearth the films that we wasted our childhoods on. Mm. Uh, specifically, in this case, my childhood. I've, I've watched this uh, many, many, many times. Uh, this I remember this VHS tape very well. We got this one from uh, Britannia Music Club, or I guess it would have been Britannia Video Club. You know, where they used to just send you a stack of tapes and then dare you to be not lazy enough to return it. And and if you if you keep them you pay for them and and you know my, we we were a lazy household so we kept a bunch of these films and um, I've always been into to horror films I guess even from a young age uh, horror films eh yeah <laughs> stretching it it is a little isn't it it's it's differentiated so uh, would you would you like a synopsis should we do the synopsis uh, Kenneth Branagh directs and stars in this 1994 adaptation of the Mary Shelley classic variously described as a cornerstone of the horror genre and the first sci-fi novel, detailing the chaos and bloodshed that results when Victor Frankenstein, genius physician in training, dabbles in the realm of God and creates a new life from the reanimation of dead body parts. Thus begins a tale of madness, morality, and monsters both internal and external are unleashed in 18th century Geneva. It sounds horrific. <laughs> I'm, not get, I'm not sure my hand though. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm going to ask this question, Devs, and hopefully you're going to help me because I'm going to I'm going to uh, confess right now. So my my knowledge of Frankenstein is pretty limited. Um, I've not read the book, but I did read the Cliff Notes. So um, I, I have read I have read the the. So you've book. read the book, yeah. So you, yeah. what I'm saying is you're the expert when it comes down to me asking really dumb questions. But let it be said, there is no such thing as a stupid question. So, no, no, especially not. Um, when discussing a very stupid film. Oh, you showing your hand too. What? 
Nah, mate. Nah. Poker face. No. Good. Good. No, but I've got a question then. So the opening uh, pre-prologue, before we get the Star Wars scroll, yeah, is Mary, is Mary Shelley, uh, the author, speaking to the audience? I believe that is a direct quote. It's it's from it's from her. Um, it's 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 either from her introduction or from a an introduction of a subsequent um, publishing of the novel because uh, I believe that the first time it was published was um, it was published anonymously um, but it was incorrectly attributed to uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley her husband okay. well that's interesting but I having now seen the film would have thought that that opening uh, prologue whatever I would have thought that would have been the captain that we then see only because the way that the film's told is that he's the one that's going to take this story forward by the end. So why isn't it him? Why isn't he the one that's saying, oh, by the way, here's a tale that you should listen to? You're absolutely right, because in the novel, uh, the, the first person you read to so the novel is, is like a lot of, of books of the era, is sort of couched in perspectives, so perspective nested within perspectives and written as if it was letters, mostly, or journal entries. And the first person you, you read about is uh, Captain, is it Walden or Walton? Walton, because Walden comes later. I got those two confused, names-wise. Walton. Uh, you, you read about Captain Walton first, and you read about him, um, his letters to his sister while he prepares for his extraordinarily long, years-long voyage up into the, the Arctic Circle. It's, it's, uh, it's in order as well. So you, you read about him mounting his, his mission and, and finding a ship and crewing up. And he's a much more sympathetic character. Oh, he's a character, is he? Yes, yeah, he's, he's a character. And he, he's our framing narrative. But I, I think you're absolutely right in that it, it doesn't make any sense to have, to have him just kind of smash into the story because it doesn't establish the f- framing narrative as well. You could excise the fake Mary Shelley voice and the Star Wars crawl. <laughs> And you could just cut straight to our narrator being an, an integral part of the story. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, I mean, what's the scroll really add? Apart from saying, mm. this is this is the, the world, this is the place. Uh, I think it talks about the sciences and uh, there's, there's yeah. jumps in, in technology. It's but, kind of establishing the era for us. Um, I think there's there's a less cheap way of doing do it. Do that visually? Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, well, we're immediately going to smash into uh, Show Don't Tell. Show Don't Tell, yeah. If you're going to start your film by by telling people that it's a story of blood-curdling terror, I think you should probably just write a story, or show us a story of blood-curdling terror. I think you may be, especially as you've already pointed out, we're in the horror genre, but I'm not sure we're all the way in the horror genre here. Horror is a broad church, but no, dip in the dip in the time. Um, so yeah, so so we we have a, an unnecessary voiceover um, followed by a somewhat unnecessary establishing text crawl, and then we're in the Arctic Circle. Yep, yep. I, I've actually um, I've actually been black cat in here, but I've, I've been to the Arctic, and uh, mm-hmm. no such weather. But it's fine. It's not a problem. <laughs> it's not a problem. I get it. I totally get it. Uh, so it's it's yeah. just establishing the the struggles, the perils, the danger, and that's going to obviously be paralleled with with Victor Frankenstein's story. I totally yeah. totally get it. Um, yeah, and it sets up that the captain, and this is a little bit of show don't tell. He doesn't really care about the crew. 
He's this is a this is a ambitious and single minded individual. He sees one crew member go overboard, yeah. drowns, goes under the ice, um, and he and and they they get abandoned, don't they? I think they get stuck in an iceberg. It's a bit Titanic. It is, it is a it is a bit odd. It's an odd sequence visually the way it plays out. I like. I actually quite like it, although I do find it kind of comical in places. I don't know if you noticed how um, whenever they hit a piece of ice or a big wave and they lurched, you would get five in quick succession rapid cuts of not particularly agile stuntmen forward rolling. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that. Um, (laughs) And... uh, this was something I noticed when the, when the credits were rolling that the uh, director of photography on this was uh, Roger Pratt, who's shot oh, a lot wow. of work for Terry Gilliam, especially yeah. in the 80s. He shot all of Terry Gilliam's 80s stuff. And it, well, I wouldn't have got that from this film. Mm, there's there's a lot to say about the look of the film when we get further into it, but I'll just say that I, I really admire Roger Pratt's work, and I, I don't know whether this was, was some of his best. I'm going to say now that tonally, the idea that this is a, a horror film I'm gonna, I'm gonna poo-poo that because there's just not enough horror elements in the film. Uh, there's some themes going on. There's some really interesting themes, but I think that just comes from the source material. So I, you know, we judge this as a as a film and not the book, and this is an adaptation. The horror elements sort of fall by the wayside a little bit, and and there are elements which I don't know whether I'm supposed to be laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so we we now have this uh, this Arctic explorer vessel slammed into the ice and. Um... A mysterious shape emerges from the from the wilderness. Um, I'm going to ask you about your because you haven't seen this, and also, again, less familiar with with uh, the source material as well. The first appearance, because it's not a massive shock that this is Victor Frankenstein. The first appearance of Victor Frankenstein. What did you make of it? He looked very rosy in the cheeks. Um, I assumed that he was supposed to have frostbite, but they didn't quite go all the way on the makeup. He just looked like he'd been a little bit nippy, been out for maybe 20 minutes too long. And, uh, and then I, I noticed, I noticed at this point that this was, this felt like it was just like, Oh, we need to get to the, we need to hurry up. So they just jump cut to Victor's in the cabin uh, with the captain. He's like, who's your, who's your captain? I'm your captain. Can I say one thing about the captain? Do it. All these British people, why is he American? <laughs> why is he? It's the first thing I wrote down in my notes. I was like, why is he American? I will find the way to the North Pole. And it's not even a convincing American accent. It no, it fake. sounds like he's looked, putting a, yeah, he's putting like a... I a looked fake. the dude up. Oh, no, um, I, I recognize him from stuff. Yeah, Aiden Quinn. Well, I looked up his IMDb very briefly because I, I, I knew the name Aiden Quinn. So I, I he's he was just one of those... 90s guys like a less successful gabriel Byrne. he's a day player right you bring him in he does a he does a few days he's not he's not a star but he's solid gives you a performance i mean don't get me wrong i don't think he's i don't think he's bad i just wonder why he was american i just wondered was there anything in the book he's not american in the book no i mean what we were in the late uh 18th century here so i mean certainly even if there were americans they wouldn't sound like americans so yeah, I, immediately they jump cut. Well, I just just quickly just want to say, like, um, as you said, he looks a bit rosy, but very healthy. Like I said, I read the cliff notes. So he's supposed to have been in the Arctic for years, right? 
uh, an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, I want to say it's definitely months. It's possible that it's years. I understand why they can do A lot of the um, decisions made on the timeline for the film make sense because the book really does linger on a lot of things. You don't notice mm-hmm. because it's a book and obviously it was the past. So everything took a lot longer back then. You can, yeah. you can, yeah. you can believe that just three months passed because somebody had to get from one town to another. It makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in, in this instance, I mean, massive spoilers here. Uh, he's going to die in two hours. And he doesn't look like it. No, he looks all right. And and in fact, when they jump cut to the cabin, and this is what was really jarring to me, but he's full of beans. He's like, I warn you, there's a monster out there. And he's not sat down. He's standing up. He's confronting him. And then I think at one point, well, he's, they, being, he's being pinned, yeah, he's pinned to the wall. The wall. In a... And then what? Like you said, the next scene we see in that cabin, he's tired. He, he's laying down on a chaise lounge and he, and he is dead. <laughs> I'm very, very tired. <laughs> so tired. Um, so yeah, I, I've. Uh, this is the first of of many bizarre missteps. I, I feel that you know he should what, missteps or just maybe maybe they made a three hour film and they just cut it down to two hours, which it kind of feels like. Like I said, the way that the they jump cut to the cabin, it feels like an entire scene where there was probably yeah. more explanation of where what Victor's been up to, why he's out there the warning signs honestly there's 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 not much of that to pull you what you you read the script right there's not i've read the the scripts as well as the novel yeah and um actually i really like the scripts uh frank darabont took the last pass of the script before it went into it's probably worth saying actually isn't it frank darabont wrote it Mm. and uh the co-writer so he took a pass at it i do not remember is it i want to say amy lamb but that's actually the name of a friend of mine. So it's not that. I'm a very talented friend. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, we did promise that we weren't going to look things up. If we didn't research it, it doesn't exist. So we'll never know. There were two writers credited and then Darabont was credited with a, a last redraft with one of the other writers. Well, I read the interview with him where he says, it's. It, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm probably going to get the quote wrong, uh, that it's the best script he's ever written but the worst movies ever seen. Something like that. Movie movies ever seen. Is that right? Something like that. He's basically just owned the film. I've, yeah, I've, I've I've read this as well. That he he believes that a lot of the salty was was drained out of it. Well, hopefully you can well, you can uh, add some meat to the bones then, where where the script mm. has either been deviated or just been maybe miscon misconceived in Branner's mind, because yes. certainly yeah. It's it's a bit of both, to yeah, be honest. There's certain it's... scenes where I'm like, oh, this feels like it could be from the same man who made The Mist and created The Walking Dead mm-hmm. and has adapted Stephen King. And Frank Darabont's not a silly man. He's not a stupid man. He knows how to construct yeah. a story and, and characters. And there are cert- there's definitely certain bits in the film that are just completely missing that element that just feels like it's, it's completely alien. To, to use a very uh, obvious... Uh, analogy it does feel like a bit of frankenstein monster at times the movie it does feel mm. like it's been put together yeah. it really does and yes. and this opening scene just feels like jump cut okay we'll go we'll cut all the beginning and stuff out yeah uh it says oh there's a monster and then we get an element and it, i i made a note of it because of how little there was horror we do get the hand coming up with the bloody hand and we forgot that the yeah. the, the dog smashes all yeah, the dogs, dogs go out you know the hand that comes up and i was like okay that's that's mm. quite cool uh it's quite ominous you know and then 
we just go into a completely different film. Well, yeah. He, after he says his name, so he says, my name is Victor Frankenstein. And then we smash cut to some kind of insane psychedelic, like a, like a director video knockoff of Amadeus. Oh, it's, there's so much dancing in this film. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's a flopsy dancing. It is chords, but you're right. We cut to what feels like, um, and for those people that that maybe have not seen all these kind of films, basically British films for a lot the longest period were renowned for. You know, now we've got The Crown, Down Downton Abbey, and those kind of things. But for the longest period of time, British films were very, very British. The company that used to make them all were Merchant and Ivory, and it feels massively like like that kind of film. We just jump cut straight into yeah. it. Uh, they're dancing around. It's costumes. It's all very la di da di da. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna honestly have to a little bit stick up for Merchant Ivory here by saying that I don't think they would have ever committed anything this fucking weird <laughs> to the screen <laughs> because this is off putting. Like it's it's intensely bizarre. Yeah, it's um, it's weird. Can we get into the main set, which is virtually our only set? Yeah, I only sat in there. I really like the staircase. What is going on? I don't know. It so, looks dangerous, though. There's no, uh, there's yeah, no banister. There's no banister. It's also a thousand feet tall. and <laughs> It feels very deliberate. I was, I was hoping yeah. you would explain to me, because I was, I'm not smart enough to understand what he's trying to say about that staircase. I really think that, and when I said artifice, that I'm I'm cool with artifice. I like films that revel in their own artifice. I like, as I've said, I, I love terry gilliam stuff which kind of smashes the borders between he makes his sets very practical and he makes his sets part of the experience and you can walk around the set and you can see the workings and you can see the strings and i love that um there are a lot of other filmmakers that that do that as well like michelle gondry being another one i guess who um uh you know he uses lo-fi storytelling mm-hmm. techniques but they work for the uh, they work for the film because they understand that you know films date back to um, a, a certain time they were just magic shows, uh, which is a film that, which is a, a thing that Bram Stoker's Dracula understands very well. That is a hugely stylized film that uses cinematic um, tricks. It's, it's cinematically artificial, but it looks incredible. Uh, unfortunately, I think for this, Branagh's coming at this from theatrical artifice. And I don't think it reads on screen whatsoever. What you've basically got here is a stage set. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's an, it's an easy it's an easy criticism to label at someone like Branner. You look, and we're going to talk about him and his career, and we maybe as well just do it right now. So at this point, he's had an Oscar nomination directing Henry V. He is like the poster boy for British cinema at this point, I would say. And he is renowned for the adaptation of Shakespeare's work. I, that, that to me, when someone says Kenneth Branagh, that's what I think. Uh, and at this point in his career, directing, I mean, this is a great opportunity for him, but this opening 30 minutes is fundamentally where you see all the flaws in Branagh's direction because you just compared it to Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I think that's a fair, a fair comparison. Because- well, especially because... Coppola uh, exec produced this, and exactly, exactly, and it's all it, without that. I don't think you get Frankenstein in '94. No. But having rewatched uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula recently, the fundamental difference is during the talky scenes, 
and the the character stuff in Bram Stoker's Dracula you just you mentioned it before about cinematic tricks visuals there are things to engage you even though potentially Keanu Reeves the performances aren't quite there the dialogue's a bit stilted I mean I don't know whether it's something fundamental with me it might just be me but whenever we go back to the the olden days Shakespearean language uh, I do tend to just sort of switch off but you can I mean you can you can bake emotion into that. You can use that uh, that artifice to create something kind of hidden and something behind it. You can. Um, I'm thinking like Herzog's Nosferatu, which is a very strange film to watch, very mannered. Well, I I would but... go even further. I'd go even more recent than that, and I would say Coriolanus, which I'm not saying Anus for the sake of it, it's quite funny, but uh, Sir Wraith <laughs> finds did that film. Uh, and I've seen it, yes. and it, they do. They do it. They abide by the Shakespearean language, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Baz Luhrmann. So it can be done, um, but but when Branagh does it, you're right. It's so stagey, it's so stilted, yeah. and because he doesn't have the uh, the command of the camera, and he doesn't really have a visual flair or a visual style that's engaging. The this opening thirty minutes was tough it's super off-putting as well right it's like it's it comes out of nowhere i just like what, yeah. what am i watching the the dancing around it, the to, the tonal whiplash is what i would say is that tone is, is is probably the hardest thing to to quantify tone or atmosphere or whatever you want to call it it's the hardest thing to nail down what it is in a film right which i assume means that it's like the hardest thing mm-hmm. to create yeah. in a film and he does not at all which means that this bizarre opening it's borderline hilarious but it's just so kind of actively unpleasant like it's manic is the the word i'd use to describe it it's it's oppressively manic and i kept thinking that frank drebin was going to fall down that staircase (laughs) (laughs) and smash (laughs) who was it raquel welsh into a microphone but that was uh yeah, this 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 giant room where everything happens in the Frankenstein household. You know what? I re- you know what it did remind me of. It kind of reminded me of uh, Beetlejuice. No, well, I I was going to say um, later on when we get to the um, the It's Alive scene, uh, the score, which is going to need a lot of describing. This is a very oppressive score. Um, there are very heavy. Uh, Danny Elfman Batman hints. Oh, big time. But also this this production design, I if they really needed to go more Tim Burton with it. I know that it's a bit of an overtilled field to go for the the super gothic, but it's 94. I think you got to go for it. There's nothing gothic about this, which is maybe an interesting choice, but it doesn't read particularly interesting on screen if you're trying to create an atmosphere of oppressive dread. It's a sin as well with the source material, which is a classic gothic horror. But I read on IMDb trivia um, that that Tim Burton was considered, and I and I, and I made a note at the end of the film. Uh, and this isn't to show my hand as far as what I think of Branagh's direction, but that you know, what if Tim Burton had directed this? Would it would it have been better? I mean, he essentially did in um, Edward Scissorhands four years prior. But but yeah, what if he had directed this? Would it 
would, would these early scenes be better? And I think they would be because, well, the scene with the kids, it's one scene, just don't have that scene. Just have have it explained in a in a scene with the adult actors. It's like, what's the point? You, what is the point? This gets to uh, so. I mean, just just to recap it, we're talking about um, flashing back to Victor Frankenstein as like a what six year old, seven year old boy being spun around. In yeah, a, he's still dancing in a manic room with his with his mother to crazy harpsichord music, and uh, the dancing abruptly stops because uh, Ian Holm playing his father. Bilbo walks in with a little with a little girl whose um whose whole family has died of scarlet fever. Oh, you didn't get that off screen. Yeah. Uh, and they they do say it, which it's do they? It's a, I don't know. Fo- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, like this is off. Elizabeth. She's just lost her mummy and her daddy to the scarlet fever. Uh, it's not how it happens in the book. There's elements of that. I understand. Like the book's a big sprawling book. You need to to yeah, you've got to condense it for the film. But I feel like I don't know whether I don't know whether we needed a quasi incestuous love affair at the middle of this. No, we didn't. Other adaptations of Frankenstein have excised it, and I was okay with that. Yeah, and well, it, it, this this to me feels like a director. He's the author of this, so he's the main yeah. he's the main actor. He's the director, and for uh, according to Frank Darabont. He he basically made another pass at the script and made oh absolutely yeah there's there's huge chunks a host of changes and yeah you can see it because these opening scenes where they're they're dancing around it's all brother and so you get you get this Victor Frankenstein story Victor and it is a Victor Frankenstein story mm. and and my big question yes. when we get to the end of these thirty minutes and we'll talk we'll talk about the mother because I think it's an important scene well it's in scene it's very very short but I think it's important mm. um, but essentially my my big problem in these opening 30 minutes is why isn't he doing experiments? Why aren't we seeing, uh, we get one scene about him being devoted to, yes. to knowledge, to learning. And he was a curious child and it's all done in, in really kind of ham-fisted exposition with the mother and, mm-hmm. and Branna uh, goes from six years old to 35, but he's supposed to be playing. Is he supposed to be playing 18? I have no idea how old he is. Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> he's got to be playing 18 because we know he gets older because he gets a beard that he must be because it he's you assume he's still but his crow's feet tell different yeah he's still at he's still at school i assume it's it is madness isn't it and he's doing like a he's lilting his voice up an octave <laughs> oh mother it's a it's a strange it's a strange creative choice i've got to say i would have just got i would have just gone straight for kenneth branner I would have got rid of the kid because it, it, it becomes more noticeable because we go from six to Branner. Yeah, to a, an early middle-aged man. But this, to me, strikes of a man on a bit of an ego trip. It, but it ties into um, the inexplicable appearance of his first shot on screen, being him as a kind of, you know, a burly... It's, he's got a hero shot. He pulls the scarf down and he's got his face up on screen. It's like a big close-up. But he should be ruined like he should be a burnt out husk of a man let's talk about the scene where the mother gives birth victor is downstairs with elizabeth played by helena bonacarta which we'll get into after this he's looking out the window there's lightning you said it's stagey and a tree explodes now i'm assuming tree of life and electricity electricity takes such an important uh, aspect of the film with the way that the creation happens and it, it's essentially the pseudoscience is all around electricity 
So it's one way of getting electricity into the film. I got some symbolism of as the lightning strikes the tree, that dies. Victor's mother dies. She says, she says, and I think it's important as well. She says in the film, don't worry about me, save, save the child, which I think echoes later on. I can, uh, I can, I can bail you out here. I can bail you out here by saying that none of this is in the book. Uh, she doesn't, she doesn't die in, she doesn't die in childbirth. Uh, she, she actually dies of scarlet fever, not Elizabeth's parents. She dies. He makes a, he makes a pledge. And this is when we know that time has passed. Didn't they say it's three years? Yes. And he turns up and he's got like sad red eyes and a beard. He's got sad red eyes. He's got a beard. So we know that time has definitely passed. And, uh, and he, he says, you know, no one shall ever die. I will correct this, this wrong. Okay. I'm fine. I'm with this. At this point in the film, like, good, good. Let's get to the creation. Let's get to some experiments. Let's get to the thing that you promised me at the beginning, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I will, before we're allowed to get to the point, if you don't mind, no. very quickly go back. And uh, during all of the dancing sequences, uh, you uh, didn't mention a character. And I find it interesting that you didn't because she is quite integral in the script, certainly. In the book to an extent, but in the script, uh, the blonde girl, Justine. Ah, uh, Justine. I didn't mention it because the film didn't really care about her. So why should I? It's, it feels like such a the writing. Honestly, the writing in that script is 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 great as far as establishing very economically her position and realizing that you know she's basically part of the help. Yeah, she's the help, right? She's one of the yeah. She's the the daughter of the of the main kind of yeah, matron yeah. of the I, house. I, so. I, I, to be fair, I got yeah. all that. Um, but I have seen the film twice, so I got I I, mm. I picked up on that more on the second viewing. When what happens to her later on, I'm like, wow, well, who was she then? And then I yeah. so the second time I watched it, I, I paid closer attention to her. And when they say, oh, this is Justine, uh, I think because doesn't a mother in the opening scenes tell her off or something for? Yes, she slaps her hands for for messing up while playing the uh, the the keys, and then later on, slaps her hands while she's messing up the dress. It it comes from the deficiencies that he has when it comes to navigating a scene geographically and in terms of tracking his characters. There are all these big spinning camera moves, but I don't really know why. It's just, oh, films move. I think I do that. Oh, okay, go on then. I think he watched Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay. It's Well, that would have been, what, like two years before? Yeah, probably. The reason why it was so obvious to me was because the film, like you said, is so stagey. Yeah. Single shots, mid shots, two shots camera very rarely moves it's one of the reasons why i didn't recognize the cinematographer because the camera is so stilted and these opening scenes are so dull uh and, and unengaging that mm. when the camera moves it's like oh it's like a it's like a slap to the face like, oh we we have movement yeah so even in the birth scene where the camera yeah. comes down and it's a really good edit point that feels deliberate that feels mm-hmm. like okay that's a and- creative choice that they've made prior they planned that but then all the scenes and the blocking with the talky scenes in the first 30 minutes, the, it just feels like a completely different film. And which is it's probably the reason why I'm, I'm pushing to get through it, because quite frankly, I could have switched off. I could have switched off, Devs. Honestly, I could have. If we weren't doing the mm. podcast, I would have switched off. <laughs> That's, that is fair. It's, it's testing. And um, after we've now had his transition into uh, Beardy Sadman, 
we then immediately tonal whiplash cut to him and Helena Bonham Carter just having a cracking time in a lab. Where's where's she in a career at this point? Because we all know her now as Tim Burton's wife. She's a bit kooky. And you've worked with her, right? Oh, I've worked with her. Yeah. <laughs> worked with her we didn't, we, oh, you and you and Helena. We didn't do scenes together. I stood near her while she ate biscuits. Oh, you lucky bugger. <laughs> <laughs> but she did, yeah. Is it, so yeah, was it you then that told me that she's just a bit smelly? No, that was that was our, our good friend, Luke. Ah, Luke told us. There's an insight, folks. Yeah. I didn't find her particularly smelly. I th- I thought she's she seemed pretty interesting, but she's always quite kooky, right? She's always quite crazy. But most people nowadays, if you were to say Helena Bonham Carter, you would say, "Oh, Tim Burton's wife," right? Yes, yeah, so it's pre she t- she's turned yeah. into a goth. Yeah. This is pre goth, so this is this is back when she was, yeah, this is back when she was. So uh, is it a room with a view? That was, I believe, her breakthrough Merchant Ivory role. So yeah, she's she's working pretty steadily, and she's from the same kind of group of of actors that that branner would have been involved with yeah and i think uh i think branner got with her after this film or during this film was he was he not married to uh emma he was but he got point? divorced i think uh after this My film goodness 90s scandal yeah well listen some of the listeners might have switched off because the opening of 30 minutes is that bad so you've got to give them some juicy goss yeah i'm pretty sure That's true. that he's married to emma thompson and then he divorces her and starts going out with helena She's fine though in this. I have no real issues with her performance. She's 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 fine. She's a bit annoying. She doesn't really have anything to do though. She, uh, like most of the women in this film, don't really do a lot. Um, and but she she doesn't really have any any agency in the film at all. She's her only uh, motivator is she loves Victor. She wants to be with Victor. She doesn't really have anything else. I think she has one line uh, when Victor heads off that says, "I want to create a happy home." That is probably the only other thing that she says in the film that gives me any idea of what what makes her tick. The rest of the time, she's she's just there as the love interest and there to motivate Victor. But even then, he doesn't really give all that much fuck about her. It's weird. It's weird. They play so much attention to the love story, but actually, he doesn't really care all that much. It kind of feels like stroking of the ego here from Branner, I think. Well, I also... Um... I mean, looking at her character, looking at all these characters, um, you know the the way that you can determine whether a character has dynamism and whether they have uh, whether they're essential to the story is if if they have wants and needs. Oh, you talking about characters, real characters? I might be talking Robert McKee. I might oh. be uh, getting all Robert McKee on you. Why, you know, why the fuck am I paying fifteen dollars <laughs> to watch your movie? Um, you got to say it with a little bit more aggression. I can't do it. I can't. I can't, Brian Cox. Can you, Brian Cox? Why the fuck should I pay fifteen dollars to watch your movie? That's really good. terrible, Brian Cox. That's great film. Um, so yeah, um, in in terms of her wants and needs, like she she doesn't have any. She she wants to be with 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 Victor. Um, uh, again, we're probably skating over the fact that uh, they are essentially step siblings. Not even step siblings; they're adopted siblings. Adopted siblings. The... So it's not blood, but in name. Yeah. And and I, I want to get into this, and we may as well get into it now. Yes. Are the family against it? Because during the film, there's a scene uh, when Victor goes away to Ingolstadt yes. to study, 
And oh, he sends, he, the... yeah, he sends a letter back, and she's like joking. And it's pretty awful. I said that Helen is fine; she's fine in the film, but that her delivery in that is really bad. But I wonder if it is just someone who's trying to like, oh, I've got a secret to keep, so I'm going to yeah. pretend. So I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. But she's reading it, and then at the end, is like, oh, Elizabeth, I can't wait to touch your breasts. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So are they keeping it from the family? Are the family against it? And then I was thinking to myself, it's... well, if you're going to put so much focus on this love story, this unrequited love, this love that mm. shall not be spoken, why don't we see more conflict with it then? It just yeah. doesn't ever come up. So that would be somewhat interesting. Because uh, Ian, Ian Holm later gives her away at the wedding, at his deathbed, no less. Now... Do you do you want a little bit of weird historical background? Go on then, try me. Uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley uh, and the whole gang, the whole gang used to hang out over there and write poems and do snuff together, like like snuff from a box, whatever it is they used to do in the past uh, to get your kicks. There was a lot of weird incest going on. With that whole crew, mm-hmm. uh, specifics can I'm sure be found in more uh, historically reputable sources than my vaguely remembered history. Oh. But uh, there was there was a lot of that, and I think Byron, Lord Byron, used to hang out with them, and certainly he had a thing for a, a sibling. So it was it was put in there because. The book itself was was written as part of a a weekend retreat or a however long retreat that they was they spent at a, a lake house and they all just wrote stories to freak each other out and that was where the origin of this book came from. Mm. And basically, they were just they were they were libertines, kind of quintessential libertines who didn't really believe in boundaries on things. So the idea of uh, siblings even though they weren't blood relative siblings getting together being the romantic heart of her novel was kind of her nod to her friendship group sort of suggesting that this is cool and it feels like the script the script kept it in and the film obviously kept it in um there are times when uh the film and the script were quite rightly uh, ruthless as far as condensing, truncating, excising things that they didn't feel were necessary to make a compulsive film. It's a film narrative and a book narrative are completely different things. There are other times when they left stuff in that you don't really need. And this is definitely one of those cases. I'm going to say one thing from a filmmaking point of view. When you're telling a story, you've got to cut your darlings. And I do I do wonder if you just cut this all out. We need her as a as a payoff. We need we need the the love interest, but why he can't meet her in the let's say he doesn't need to meet her when he doesn't want to be more her. conventional, maybe even more cinematic relationship at this point, you know, just make her the mm. desirable, the thing that keeps his humanity. Yeah, cuz the the um... That this was a problem that every time you had to feel like characters felt something for each other, you just didn't. I had, I had no emotional attachment to anybody, including yeah. the creature. Can we can we talk about Branner's performance? Can we just get it? Can we get that out of the way now? Should we just get it out of the way? 
So we talked about him as a director. I'm now going to talk to him, talk about him as the actor. He's all over the place in this. Um, he seems more comfortable in those uh, more thespian scenes. Uh, however, as Victor Frankenstein, I don't get, I don't get anything. I don't get his self obsession. I don't get manic. I don't get mad scientist. Uh, I get spoiled rich kid, which I think is, I think I should be getting. But at some point in the film, I should be feeling some form of pathos. I should be feeling some form of kind of sympathy or pity for the man. But I feel, I feel nothing for him. I, honestly, at the point, the film makes such a point, and this is this is, coincides with his direction. It makes such a point of making him this action hero protagonist that you're supposed to be following along. It's supposed to be his story. He's supposed to be the person that we're rooting for, pretty much throughout the film, including when the creature turns up. Yet at no point in the film am I with him. I'm just thinking you you're a bit of a dick. You're selfish. You care for nobody but you also don't learn any lessons. So what is, what is your character? What's yeah. the point of you? Exactly. What is he? Is he a romantic lead? Is he an action hero? Is he a tragic hero? Is he an anti-hero? He's kind of none. And that's a, that's a, that's a fatal flaw considering he's on screen so much. Victor Frankenstein goes off. He talks to Elizabeth and he says, um, you know, will you marry me? And she's like, oh, no, I can't. I can't marry you. And it'll be my wife. Yes. Oh, no. He says it. That's when he first mentions, like, sister, lover, wife. (laughs) What? Don't. so creepy. Don't say those three things at once. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, we were liberal in the 90s, I think. You know, hackers had been made and was a success. (laughs) (laughs) You can't blame Matthew Lillard for everything that goes wrong in your life. But my my point being is that uh, yeah he's he's he 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 proposes to Elizabeth and Elizabeth's like no you've got to go this away after, you've got to study the, you're going to uh, be this great person yeah. after and, the terrible uh, lightning scene of course yeah after the terrible I, lightning I, scene that bit the sound of music scene yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah they're just dancing around and the hills are alive and then yep. badly rear projected mountains. And then the tiny little personal storm cloud. <laughs> I'm going to give Branner some credit, though, so before I start hammering him again uh, on the acting front and on the directing front. I'll give him something. I quickly understand Victor's traits, though. He's willing to put the people he loves in danger. So the way that he does the experiment in the hills, they think that they're going off for a little wonderful picnic time. And actually, he's kind of just set them up. And he, he knows, he says, like, oh, I was kind of counting on the lightning storm coming in. So a lightning storm's coming in. They're up in the hills. Um, they're, they're wondering about the danger. We've set it up that lightning will hit the tree. And he's like, it's a great conductor. He's got his little brother there. And it's, it's Justine. Who's the one who's with him? Yeah, Justine. Justine. Fair, yeah. So it's Justine, Elizabeth, his little brother. He also gets the short shrift. And they're going to do this yeah. little experiment. He's like, oh, lie down on the floor and make a cross. The lightning hits this pole. And it's him experimenting. How do I um, concentrate the energy? of electricity because that's going to prove very important when it comes down to the source of power that's going to create life. But I actually don't mind that. I understand that Victor is willing to uh, put the people he loves in danger. It works for me as a scene. It's fine. We get a nice little uh, reference to the creation. Is it the creation of Adam? Yeah. 
And we and then and then they go then they cut to more fucking dancing. And after the dancey dancey scene, he pose he poses the question. Elizabeth says, No, 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 no. You've got to go away and study and become this great man. So he goes off and does this great man thing. And I'm gonna just jump. So I'm gonna jump to a scene where I was like, I said, what if Tim Burton had directed it? I'm now going to say, what if Sam Raimi directed it? Because the monkey paw, which was, I put, I put it down as like, oh, I quite like this. I was back into it at that point. I really was. He's, he's, so he's met his, he's met his mate who I'm not even going to bother. I don't even know his name, but he meets this guy. That's Tom Hulse, isn't it? That's Tom Hulse from uh, Animal House. I know it's Tom Hulse. And, and the character is, is a nobody. Oh, uh, in well, it's Henry Clerval or Clerval. I don't know which. Uh, in the book, he's his uh, his closest confidant. In the script, actually, I think the film gives him more to do than the script did. He's like um, the comic relief almost. But again, like if he's supposed to. In the book, he kind of serves as a um, the other half of Frankenstein's mind. So uh, Frankenstein is the um, uh, is it the the left brain is the scientific brain, and the right brain is the creative. I can't remember which hemisphere. You know, the brain is supposed to be divided into hemispheres. One is supposed to be scientific, and so uh, Henry Henry represents uh, the the romantic um, emotional side. The the two of them together, and they 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 don't meet at university either. They meet as, as children, so they're lifelong friends. Um, and it's the loss of uh, Henry that kind of really helps push Victor away from any kind of recognizable morality. I, I guess it's the the book is 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 the fall of Victor Frankenstein and and him distancing himself from humanity. And, and I think Clerval is supposed to represent his last, his last tie. If, if that makes any sense. And, uh, but yeah, you don't get any of that. He's, he's just, a, like I said, he, he turns up. He's just an irritating. He, fop. Yeah. He's a bit of a comic relief. So you're talking about romantic. Well, he's talking about, um, helping sick old women so he can, sleep with their daughters See? so i don't know how romantic that is but yeah yeah but yeah he turns up so he meets his mate and one of the things he does is and it's the and it's the bit that i wish we had more of if we were going to go down this route of we we're actually going to tell the story of not the creation but the the man the creator if we're going to do that then i would love to have got into the ethics a little bit more the morality of the theories that Frankenstein's mm. discussing. He goes to Ingolstadt to learn, uh, I guess it's medical science, isn't it? They talk yeah. about uh, yeah, medicine. Gonna a, he's going to be a physician. Physics, chemistry, biology, but it's all, it's all rooted in hard science. And Victor is obsessed with the slightly more, the mad, the macabre kind of science, mm. the, the wacky, crazy stuff. And he, he immediately has a conflict with, um, yeah, he, I guess he's like the, I head, his name is the head of the Yeah, the head of the school. Right? And I, I don't mind Krimpka, it. I don't mind the way sorry. it's shot. Uh, you know, Victor's looking down yes. on him and the way that it's shot is mm. he's on the top tier, the professor's down at the bottom. It's all, you know, it's all a little bit on the nose as far as uh, as visual storytelling, but These, you know, we've been calling yeah. for it, you know, please show me, don't tell me. So there's there's a little bit of that. Um I would have loved that, Devs. I would have loved a little bit more of the ethics. 
We're just getting basically poo-pooing it, going, ah, rubbish. Yeah, and then late, and, and, and later you also hear him yelling about, this is not just illegal, it is immoral. And as good, do, do more. Uh, is it in the script, or is it yeah. just that's that's pretty much where it is? Uh, yeah, there's a bit more. I, I will say that, because um, this was a, <clears throat> excuse me, this was a, an, a, a good change that was that was made pulling from the novel there's there's not such clear-cut contrasts between the the two uh scientists because we also meet um who is later his mentor the guy who shows him the monkey paw which is uh uh voldman and that's and that's john cleese who i really wish we had more of yeah unrecognizable he i really enjoyed him in this and i really feel like why we couldn't have got just a little more of this because it's it's a great idea setting up these these two opposing poles for for how the sciences should go. One is is very structured and, and rigid, and the other is willing to indulge in in the arcane and the macabre. And instead, it just becomes a a shouting match. He just shouts people down. He's just a bit of a dick. So at no point does he really articulate why his viewpoint should be the one that is explored we never we never get to see him like you said before like we never get to see him be a genius no, he, he doesn't play mad scientist because when i think mad scientist i need to relate to it as far as okay he's going about it the wrong way but i can see his point but we don't get any of that in the in this mm-hmm. film we just get someone running around like i said like a spoiled rich kid and he, and he never faces any consequences yep. really even at the end we don't really feel yeah. his loss at any point because he doesn't convey it. I just, I, I don't, honestly don't think he's he got a Victor Frankenstein in him. For one thing, and this is going to sound way harsher than it should, he's not old, but he's too, he's too old for this role. He's too old for this. He's too old for book Frankenstein. If you want to play, you know, mad scientist Victor Frankenstein of the James Whale Frankenstein movies, if you want to play the the Frankenstein of, of kind of, I guess, more popular imagination. He can be whatever age he wants. But generally speaking, that Frankenstein mm-hmm. is a villain or or at least a, a kind of tragic anti-hero. I'm going to give him one moment. And uh, this is, I guess, we're jumping ahead a little here because um, he spends his time at university, just he debates the ethics and whatnot. <clears throat> um, there's, there's an interesting scene with... Uh, uh, the loss of his mentor, which I guess you could say is the thing that really pushes him over the edge. When a, an almost unrecognizable Robert De Niro shivs John Cleese for wanting to mm. immunize him against smallpox. In what accent? <laughs> He's just showing you not sticking that thing in me. It's apparently the only line of dialogue they wrote for him. So he wanted to make sure he said it as often as possible. But I'm going to jump into this quickly. There's a, there's a very There's a very authentic moment after the creation of the monster. There's a nice scene. Maybe we should get into the creation and then I'll come to it. Without without um, dismissing all the Ingolstadt, I thought we spent a long time in the beginning because the beginning is really problematic. The Ingolstadt stuff is fine. Well, Elizabeth, Elizabeth comes comes to, to him after John Cleese is murdered and he tells her to, to get out. And she does. And she makes a really funny noise as she runs down the street. Can I, can I confess something, though? You know, when she's running down the street, I actually thought she was going to die in that scene because the way that um, the... The friend starts chasing her and shouting like Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Yeah. He's calling out for to her as a warning, like she's going to get hit with something, or that someone's going to grab her and they've got cholera or something like that. 
yeah, it doesn't transpire. She's just running. It would it would probably make sense, right, for there to be a more um, like narratively, it would make sense for there to be a more noticeable loss. But I guess no. I guess at this point, he's building. He's building to the creation of the monster. I think you mentioned it. It was more just a during the Ingolstadt stuff. The bits that I did not like. Yeah. In that sort of twenty minutes before we get to the creation, and and the stuff with the very very short stuff with John Cleese, unrecognizable with some goofy mm. teeth and a terrible wig, is it just cuts to Elizabeth reading letters, and it's like, oh god, every yeah. time or write or writing letters or writing and letters. then reading them out loud for our benefit. We're not learning anything new. And we're not getting anything from this. This is, like you said, the film, almost George Lucas-like, telling us how much they're in love and not showing us. No reason why they these two are compatible. No reason why these two get mm. on. No chemistry. Just, I love you because I do. Yeah. Can I ask one question, though, about the John Cleese character? When he, Victor, you can be, you can be my apprentice. Uh, you can learn from me. I'll be your mentor. He's hesitant to give him his notebook because he says, got too close, it created an abomination. If that was the case, why does he work with Victor in the first place? Like what exactly are they working towards if not that? The, the finished film leaned more heavily on the um, mentor-mentee relationship than the script to an extent, I guess. Um, I think that's charitable. And about three seats together. Certainly the film doesn't... Yeah, certainly the film doesn't have any of this at, at all. Uh, the, the book, sorry, the book. The book doesn't have any of this, sorry. The script... Um, oh, no, sorry. I thought you said the film. Oh, God. No, the... Um, the Thank the Lord. I thought you were talking nonsense. The script... The, the script is... Um, plays it a little mysterious with... Uh, with with Waldman, from what I recall, yeah, he should be more dangerous as well. He should be he he should be darker. He really should. He comes off as like quite a likable, affable fella. I guess that's what you get when you hire John Cleese. I like I like the way he's presented. Um, I like the way he's presented visually in his opening scene. You know, he's got his like half his face half in shadow. And stuff. He should be more mysterious. Again, I do wonder does Tim Burton or a Sam Raimi. Uh, do a better job uh, of just creating that mood and tone. Because you know what we're not talking about? Horror. Yeah. Oh, my God. Nothing has happened so far. Um, um, yeah. So, we, you know, he's lost his mentor, and, and I guess that's what pushed him. And he, he pushes his his wife-to-be slash sister away. And and that that's it. That's that's his motivation, right? Like, he's he's shut off his last, um, his last connection to the living world and now he's and now he's uh he's decided that he's he's going for it he's tipped over to he's tipped over the edge hasn't he and there's a couple of nice little bits there's there's one in the montage of him building up to once he's got the notes and he's like that's it that's the combination and we see the frog the frog's got some unusually weird bit of uh, increased strength as it kicks the glass and smashes it i'm like ooh, yes we're getting to it there's one bit where he just cre- he just picks up some embryonic fluid from a woman who's being pregnant i'm like yeah. more of that please more of that yeah i liked it i like that i feel like yeah you're absolutely right we need we needed something because like there are moments in that which are kind of grotesque and funny and you needed you know what if we're going to talk about imaginary um substitute directors for film scenes um Let's put uh, John Landis on that 
on that grave robbing montage. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. That's that's a trio of directors that I think would do fantastic stuff with this material at this point in their careers as well. You know, at this point, John Lannis still isn't. He hasn't done Blues you know, Brothers blessed. 2000 yet. So. No. Good for him. No. But at this point in their careers, Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, John Landis, that's a great shout. Imagine yeah. what they would do with this material. The uh, the film at this point has been somewhat of a disappointment. And then what I will give Branner, um, I'm going to give him positive and negative. So we're going to get to the creation. So at this point, he's got the embryonic fluid and the score. Ramping it up. Just takes completely takes oh, it takes over. So it's like a it's like a jolt to the arm. It's it's like it's a just, fish slap to the face. Brutal. It is. It it takes over. It does all the heavy lifting. But the one thing that uh, I've been crying out for at this point in the film is energy and verve, mm. and we get that in this yeah. creation scene. I don't know why he's shirtless though. I guess again that's just part of his ego of I'm in good nick, sweaty it's, and it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's it, it, it does. I don't understand ridiculous. why he's shirtless. <laughs> Apart from it just being like sexy Branner, there's no reason for it whatsoever. So positive, there's energy, there's verve. I'll give the production design credit. Uh, I, I actually texted you, didn't I, a couple of days ago because I, so I watched it a second time a few days back and I texted you because I thought, well, second time watching it. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm looking at the, and it's all pseudoscience and you're fine with it, you know, electricity. He's got eels. And you're like, okay, we saw eels uh, earlier in the film. Elizabeth spraying some, uh, got like yeah. a little spray thing, and he's like, don't, don't mess with that. It's for spraying eels. So we know that eels yep. are going to have something to do with uh, the way that the energy is going to be transferred. Fine, it's a little bit steampunky. It's it works for me. I'm actually I'm on board with it. But the way that the the they've created what looks like a huge ball sack. And it is, right? It's just a pair oh, of balls. Yeah, I'm, I'm, the, the, giant, the eels I'm, come out of the balls the, the... and go down tubes. So they <laughs> look like little spunks that are, that are traveling yeah. down. And the the body that he's, uh, that he's concocted mm-hmm. from all these bits. So I forgot to mention. So he's grabbed embryonic <laughs> fluid. He's grabbed like Robert De Niro, who got hung for stabbing his uh, mentor. Uh, he's grabbed, we see him marking his face, so we know that De Niro is going to be part of it. Uh, he grabs a leg off some kid. He, yes. you know, all these bits and pieces. It's Frankenstein's mind. And of course, the finest brain. Yep, and he grabs his mentor's brain, which I thought was quite a nice touch. And and I guess it, it explains later on why the creature's so um, so quick to learn. Uh, yes. So it, it, that that's all fine. But yeah, ball sack, tube, spunk in this form of eels and then the creature is in a tomb like thing which rhymes with womb and it's filled with fluid and then when the creature comes alive he tips that over and it pops out as if a baby has popped out the womb no yeah yeah that's 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 you're absolutely right um and it's not subtle yeah, it's, is my point it's a no, but it's a cracking description thereof. <laughs> and I actually, um, the the creation scene, I'm into it. It's weird that he's got his top off. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. Um, with his locks flowing, that's again, I think we're talking, you know, this is some 90s ego trip stuff, which is unfortunate because it's, it's, um, it's really throwing a lot of the attention away from what should be going on. But 
the sequence immediately post where um a kind of tragic can i stop you before you go into oh, it yeah, yeah, go for it. can i stop you just because so you know earlier i talked about scenes where i was laughing mm-hmm. and i was wondering if i should be or shouldn't be yeah whether it was intentional or not and i mentioned sam raimi uh-huh. so victor has created the monster the monster is alive yeah live 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 he can't get it to stand up yeah and it falls and it goes on for what felt like an eternity yes. and i was laughing and i was laughing well, I was See, laughing and I was wondering, I, was should I, I actually be laughing? really like that is this scene. Supposed I to be think funny, it's great. Or am I supposed to be understanding that Victor is disappointed in his creation because it can't even stand? Like uh, that would, to me, I was, I was conflicted because I was, I was honestly, I was pissing myself. <laughs> am I supposed to be laughing, Devlin, is my big question. Based, based on everything that follows that scene, I'm going to say no. I don't think so either, which is why I stopped you before, before you got into it. Because I was, I actually, I, I like it as a scene. I think it's, it's, it's weird. It's a even the way, even the way that the creature hangs yeah. up, and I get it, Christ imagery and oh, all and that kind of stuff. He gets thunked on the head by a bit of wood. Yeah, he gets thunked on the head with a big sandbag. <laughs> like what? So three stooges. What is going on? Yeah, it is. It's three stooges. What, what are we doing? I've got a naked De Niro and a half naked Branner running, like jumping around in jizz. Yes, absolutely. That, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. <laughs> and if, even like I'll take unintentional comedy at this stage in the film. Um, yes. And yeah, it's it's a good one. I like it. I mean, I like the idea of that being how he conveys his disappointment in in the creation of the creature. Well, that's right, though, right? Yeah. He, the creature can't even stand. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's his disappointment. You know, again, I've not read the I've not read the book, but. Oof. I'm getting, can't, I don't, I'm getting I don't think much of depression here. You know the the idea that you create a life. This is in the this is in the script. Yeah, so you you know Victor creates a life and he's got postnatal depression and he's abandoning. You know the way that he then abandons it. That theme is running through, right? Yeah. You know, in 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 complete parallel to the mother earlier on, who's willing to sacrifice her life. For a child in creation, Whereas Victor is, is the, the selfish. Victor is selfish. Yeah, Victor's yeah. disappointed. There's a um, so the moment after after he has his comedy pratfall where he gets slung up on some chains and he believes it, his creature is dead. And he talks he talks into his journal as if it's a tape recorder, except it's not. It's made of paper, so he should know this, but. It's it's another one of these stagey kind of weird interludes. So yeah, uh, Bran is talking to himself, but afterwards there's a moment where he looks in the mirror and he does the you know the what have I done thing. There's a genuinely authentic moment, and one of maybe three in the entire film, where I felt like this was a performance and where was this for the rest of the running time? Do you know the one? Is it kind of haunted? Yeah, look? no, I know the one. I, I'm I'm. Maybe I'm being harsh. I'm do it. I'm going to disagree with you. All right. I'm going to disagree with you because uh, so I'm reaching when I say uh, that the scene where he's struggling to get him to stand is the reason why he's so disappointed because that whole uh, scene after the initial creation where Victor says, "Oh, what have I done?" shuts the door on him, pops off to leaves bed. him hanging. Pops off to bed. The the creature then comes out and it 
and it immediately we go into slasher territory where yeah. the reason why Victor abandons him, and this is this to me feels again like Branner going, Oh, I don't want to make my character seem like you know a heartless bastard. So what we'll do is we'll we'll shoot the scene so it appears that the creature was chasing me, and that seems like a justifiable reason why I would abandon it. It just totally fudges his motivation. Totally fudges. Yeah, absolutely. Totally fudges the emotion of the scene. It, it fudges the motivation of the scene, but it also completely fudges the theme that I've just been talking about, a postnatal depression. Mm-hmm. So when you say yeah. you're happy with his performance, I'm not because I don't get that. The only, the only reason that tells me that he's uh, disappointed and that he's he's suddenly got this flashbulb moment is, is the fact that he says it. Oh, what have I done? Yeah. There's just a, there's a kind of haunted look in his eyes, and I just I I, I guess I'm are. grading on a very low curve. I just I felt yeah. It just looked it just looked like like he'd brought a little bit of something that day just on that one shot. But also, um, overlaying the other doctor, like an imaginary the other the the doctor that slagged him off. Oh, it's awful. That's an awful choice. Yeah, and and again, I thought that was just shorthand. I guess one of the the worst things you can do is is try and rewrite or remake a film and make it better. But you know what? Screw it. I can do what I want. Um, if they had reframed Victor Frankenstein in that moment in this scene, if he had tried to end the creature's life out of a mixture of revulsion and pity, and then the creature fought back and escaped would that not make for a more interesting conflict throughout the rest of the film? And the abandonment doesn't feel deliberate. It just feels like something that, you know, happenstance. Yeah, he escaped. And even the escape just doesn't work because we just jump cut to the creature grabs. So we, uh, just to make sure that we clear it up, obviously you should have seen the film before you listen to us talk about it. But Victor put his journal which is the notes that describes how he's created mm-hmm. the, the creature in his jacket pocket, which looks like the, yeah. the, uh, the fisherman's jacket. And I know what you did last summer. <laughs> of course, make sure, uh, make sure Pinto from Animal House points out to the audience that it's a nice coat. He, do, he does it more than once. Do you remember the other, there's a bit later on where he's like, you can put that in, you can put, yeah, that in your journal. <gasps> the journal. <laughs> Should we talk De Niro? He's in it now. Uh, just just the 50 minutes in. I mean, you're going to count the beggar scene where he's talking in this weird accent. But let's say he's in the film properly now as the creature. Uh, what, what are your initial thoughts? Overall, uh, now this is a bit outside of text. So I don't really feel like, I don't feel, I don't feel like, well, I don't feel like this is fair because um, my mental image now, despite the fact that this was, as I said, this was the film that I watched a lot as a kid. This is my, this is my Frankenstein for better or worse. This is my introduction to it. This is the one that I've seen the most. I've seen this a lot. Um, but in my head now, uh, my, uh, mental image of Frankenstein is, is the, uh, illustrated version of the original novel. Um, it's illustrated by this guy, Bernie Wrightson. It's like a legendary comic book uh, illustrator. Um, he co-created uh, Swamp Thing, was what he was most famous for, I guess. But he created this this beautiful 
series of um, ink, just pen and ink il illustrations. And this is my recommendation for after this. I'll lend you this. And anyone else should should go off and get it because it's a masterpiece. Um, in just maybe 20 book plate illustrations, he puts across just such an evocative um, image of what the monster should look like. It's a it's a monster. It's a literal monster, but also you know it, it carries the the tragedy and the pathos that you want. But it's also it's imposing and it's violent. Uh, De Niro is is too brawny. He's the, his his movements and I, it's a strange strange performance that. Given that this is before, I mean, De Niro's career can be kind of divided into pre-Rocky and Bullwinkle and post-Rocky and Bullwinkle. Good choice. We're still pre-Rocky and Bullwinkle. So he still kind of has some grasp on his faculties. Um, and it's, it's disappointing because this feels like it could be a real moment for him. And we're, what, we're only like two years removed from Cape Fear, maybe three? I think it's three. I think Cape Fear was 91. Um, which is obviously a very operatic performance, but it's a very effective performance as well. And this, it just doesn't have that. It's it's strangely inert, but the rest of the film is so inert that maybe that's the problem. He doesn't have anything to bounce off because there's no atmosphere swirling around him. So he's he's doing his best. There are moments when it works, but generally speaking, it's just it's very flat. I don't know how about you. And it's funny you should mention Cape Fear because I. He reminds me of Max Cady in Cape Fear. Uh, he's describing uh, in, and I'm, you know, jumping ahead slightly, but he's describing how he murdered Victor's younger brother. Yes, and and he does it in a sinister and kind of sadistic manner, which reminds mm. me of Cape Fear. Uh, I I don't like him in this film at all. I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lay it all on De Niro. Um, I think the makeup's cool. I like the makeup. I think it's quite effective. It looks kind of it looks what it should do. It's a different interpretation. Like I said, most people think of Frankenstein. They think arms rigid out and bolts in the ears and uh, a terrible Lloyd Christmas haircut and all that kind of stuff. Yes, but uh, this interpretation, the design, I like it. Uh, the performance, though, I don't. And I do wonder if the reason why, why I don't. And I really don't like it, as opposed to just being like, oh, I don't think he's very good in it, which is fine. As there's plenty of actors that are really, really good that have just gone, eh, they're fine in it. You know, they don't really do all that much. The reason I don't like it is because I think that the creature just talks too much. He articulates all his emotions. Yeah. So De Niro's performance, there's no nuance to it because he doesn't need to. He just explains how he feels, mm. his thoughts. Everything is done through dialogue. So you say that his performance is quite in it well i think it's because he doesn't need to put in much of a performance so if if we want to barrel barrel through his uh his, his plot quickly he gets beat up in the street for being a cholera he's just the cholera a, a woman shouts it and so people hit him with sticks and then he runs away and then he finds he does show some strength, though. He chucks a oh, town yeah. person. That's true. But it's funny. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's some quality wire work. It is some quality wire work. Um, and he finds himself um, on the set of the BBC TV adaptation of The Borrowers, except that oh, they're you full... said The Borrowers. You know what I thought? Yeah. I thought the BBC 
Rescue Drama uh, Robin Hood. So <laughs> <laughs> they said a little cottage yeah. on the right hand side of the of the set. And he's going to come film. round and steal the rent or whatever. We've we've talked about um shorthand and that especially when we get into this kind of, of cinema, you understand that we're in shorthand territory. You understand that um uh things are signified rather than explored in depth because you have to you have to get through a narrative. So I I don't mind it like you only have so many scenes with a character, but this uh it just nothing right like the, the i didn't feel like anything was being signified i understood what should be happening i could map that onto it if i put some effort in but i don't feel like i should have to i feel like the film should be putting the effort in to show me that he is going through the stages of of education of early life education and he's having to do it very very rapidly while sleeping in a pigsty while knowing that he is a a a repulsive creature but still trying to find human connection and trying to find empathy and then eventually having it rejected like this should all be so heavy and it's all it should be shouldn't it it should be laid on nice and thick but it it really isn't it it, it isn't and it isn't enough and i'm gonna make a comparison and I don't want this episode to make it seem like I'm Tim Burton's biggest fan because I'm not, but I'll go con- a comparison of Frankenstein to Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. And I think it's a fair comparison. The love story in Edward Scissorhands, and I know we've talked about this because I've talked about it in film school. Yeah. Uh, so I remember uh, watching watching that film, I think it was like for the second time I'd ever seen it. And the first time I saw it, I wasn't all that much. Uh, I wasn't moved by it at all. And then the second time, I was bubbling like a little baby. Mm. And the reason being is because Burton does a great job of conveying the love story and the connection between Winona Ryder's character and Johnny Depp's uh, essentially Frankenstein character yeah. in about three or four scenes. And then it culminates in the eye stance with the music. And you're like, boom, I get it. They're in love. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. This film needed that. It needed the skill and subtlety and the ability to tell that story in real shorthand. And I don't think Branner's up to it. No. And I don't think De Niro's up to it in conveying the emotions that are required for the creature in the story because I don't get the tragic element at all. I just get basically a, a Jason Voorhees, a Mike Myers yeah. character with a little bit more intelligence and that's where you know i go to the cape fear mm. and it's easy it's easy to make that jump because de niro's yeah in cape fear well it his uh because his his heel turn if you want to use wrestling parlance which i don't know why you would um comes when he uh sets fire to the cottage after he's been rejected Oh, it's awful. And he does the Frankenstein in front of the flames. This, this is terrible. This is a terrible... feels like a... Well, it's a trailer moment, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a full-on trailer moment. It's a moment, trailer but... for a terrible film. It's a, for a terrible film. It, it is Darth Vader. No. Yeah. In yeah we're, we're up it's in... the thing that you do as a parody for the thing that you don't do. And it, I can't believe that they do that in the film. 
I get it. He's reje- he's been rejected by another another surrogate family. I get it. But what? I totally get like it. Like he turns around and screams the word Frankenstein in front of flames while staring down the barrel of the camera. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. Yeah. And it's a terrible performance. I think he knows. He must know he's rubbish in it. Yeah. Couple of moments, but nothing nothing particularly great. I mean, here's a question, and I, I was struggling to think of, but is he just too big of a star for this type of character? You know what you, what you need is somebody who can convey things with physicality. You know, you should get his um uh what's his name? Kevin Peter Hall. Because he's massive, right? Yeah, he's huge. He's huge. Be, uh, but, he, but in that film, in the in the first film, he's fantastic. He's great. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Is the thing that sells I, the monster. I'm I'm sure That's the dude. Great. I'm sure the dude could act if you gave him a shot. Um, I'm just again. This is me probably bringing my um my mental image of um uh the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein in, and the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein is 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 very tall and very skinny, but very lean and. You know, he's a fantastical creature. Well, in 2018, you'd, you'd, I don't know, would you CGI him and just get Andy Serkis to do it? I don't Ooh. know. I mean, I wouldn't. Ooh, I, don't know. I, I, I think, but... like I said, I'll give the uh, the film credit. I think the the makeup and the way that they've gone um, with the with the it's stitches. It's not a terrible idea. It's not a terrible idea at all. I, I quite like it. Um, I really do. And it's I can... yeah. I like that you get the passage of time, and that yeah, you probably would shave his head in order to plunge an electrical node into his scalp. Mm-hmm. And then also the hair grows throughout the film. It's how you can trace his, his timeline. Just to recap. So he's gone. He's, and, and this is where, again, the shorthand's good because initially, like I said, he's childlike and his initial, his initial instinct is for good. The family is struggling. They can't pull the crops out of the ground because the, the ground's frozen. He's got unusual strength set up by the frog kicking the glass. So he can pull the crops out. He leaves them. He then becomes this ghost of the forest. He becomes friends or he, he learns how to speak first through one of the children in the family, the, the farmhouse family. Uh, he watches them. I didn't mind that. I didn't yep. mind, you know, the whole fr- fr- friend. I didn't mind that. It was just the bit where because like we've set him up as Professor Walden's brain, that he's so smart that he's just able to just go from friend to he can read and write. I, I quite like it. Cause I, I remember reading um, since this, I, I went on um, like Metacritic or whatever, and I, I just looked up, I wanted to get a, a vague feel of what people were thinking about the film at the time. And, and somebody brought that up as being um, like a massive negative was, Oh. I don't think it's a massive negative. I just think he talks too yeah. much. But I, yeah, this this critic was like, "Oh, I can't get my head around how he can learn how to read from watching a family of idiot, oh, no, I'm idiot, not getting, no, idiot no, no, turnip no, no, farmers." No, no. But he he addresses it in the dialogue by saying, um, "Do you know how that I know how to play this?" When he lifts up the flute or the pipe, whatever it's yeah. like a recorder, I guess. He says, "You know what?" No, well, you see, you know when he says that, yeah, he he implies that he knows it through some sort of memory that's implanted mm-hmm. in him. I got it that he learned because the blind guy was playing it. I got I got a bit of, I got a bit of both that he that he watched it, but that he had recognized the music. That because he he approached the old 
guy in the forest when he heard him playing the music. And then later, the fact that he he learned how to play it so quickly, and then he says, "In where does this uh, where does this knowledge reside? In this brain, in these hands, in this heart." I quite like that. It was maybe a little of of both that that stirred something. So I'm 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 fine with it. We're in. I mean, if you're in a film where where a guy is stitched together from parts and reanimated by sperm-like eels, I feel like there are leaps in narrative logic that you're allowed to take, especially if the film takes its time to address. So them. right. So he burns down. Horrible, horrible scene. We're then faced with our act three. He he walks across the the thing and he almost he immediately kills Willie, right? This 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 all this is problematic to me. It's problematic because it's not set up and the setup itself is flawed. Hmm. Willie's not been important in this film. Nope. And he's not important, even when he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> You know, never kill the kids, all that kind of stuff. No, no, he's not even important. So uh, I'll explain this one. So Frankenstein goes to Geneva. We know this because he tells us, because he goes, Geneva, <laughs> when, he, uh, when he walks across the ice. It kind of sets it up that he's able to take the cold temperatures and all that kind of yep. stuff without feeling any adverse effects. That's fine. That's fine. All good stuff. Um, he gets to uh, Geneva, follows Frankenstein knows that Frankenstein's there through the journal. Uh, he sees the little kid. He runs into the forest, and Frankenstein's sat down. He's playing his uh, playing the flute. The kid looks at him, is horrified by his face, uh, and runs off. Cut to... Yes. Little Willie hasn't come back, so there's a search party for him. <laughs> just the use, the use of Little Willie, just, it, it did make me laugh how much people talked about Willie in this film. Willie! I'm sorry, it's irrelevant. You are you're so immature, Devlin. I am. At this stage in the film, I was taking what I could get. You've got to, you've got to get your laughs where you can get them. So Justine, the servant, is also yep. searching for him. They're all spread out. Why is she on her own? One. Two. She gets tired from searching for him. She's so, so tired, she decides to go to bed in the barn. Devlin, this makes no sense. And then when she go, then when she goes to sleep, she seems to be having some sort of frightmare. No, it is not. The monster, uh, sorry, the monster, the creature then sees Justine. You can call him a monster. I think it's fine. Nah, I don't want to call. He's him one that. of the. He's one of the. He's one of the universal monsters. Uh, well, we'll be lucky to see a Frankenstein universal monster. <laughs> so, uh, I have more chance of this getting remade. He then has got the locket that the child had. The child being Willie. And he just places it on her. We know he's smart, but Devon, this is where I've got real problems. Elizabeth finds Willie. Willie's dead. We don't really know how he died, but he's dead. Uh, Victor sees him. Shock horror. Ian Holm goes into into actual shock, and then someone knocks on the door. He looks like uh, you know, he looks like Thomas More, and he just says, "We found the murderer. We found the locket." There's no Columbos out there. How are they determining that she killed the kid? from the locket that makes no sense they wouldn't have they don't even know that the locket was in the kid's possession this makes no sense whatsoever and and she did it because she really wanted a crappy locket with a badly photoshopped photograph of kenneth branner made to look like an oil painting but it really does and and what's even worse is when we find out how the kid died strangled 
is neck crushed. These people believe that this woman did it. Which which is a shame because um, as a change to... This is actually an amendment from the script. And it's an amendment from the book, obviously. Like we've we've left the we've left the book behind at this point to to a great extent. Justine's certainly she's implicated and she is hung in the in the book. What is a, an improvement is that uh, in the script it kind of gets fudged a little, and um, Victor goes to see her. He gets led to the courthouse by the um, the police or to the jail, I guess. And and they talk, and he kind of allows her to be hung, and only then later realizes that it was the monster. Whereas what I like about what they did in the film was that they took that, and because at this point we were desperate for a set piece because this film has been dragging, and so a lynch mob. They literally state it as well. It's a lynch mob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I'm pretty sure there was no such phrase as lynch mob. It's brilliant though. In 1780, but yeah, we went with it and. And you know what? I, I like it. I like that it's um, it's it's another mark on on Frankenstein's conscience and on his soul. It's another death that's that that's his fault. But of course, it doesn't actually carry across the character because nothing does in the story. Yes, it's another life lost. Yeah, as a consequence of Frankenstein's actions. But in the film, we get no such. We get no such thing. Well, film film doesn't care because he's still he's still our protagonist. <laughs> it's just a it's just another thing that happens. It's just like it's a lynch mob. It just happens, and he and, and to the point where he's blameless because it happens so quick. And what what was so shocking was the brutality mm. of it, and and it felt like the crowd from <laughs> Evil Dead Three, yeah, yeah. Army of Darkness, um, were just like they were begging for blood. But the way that she is hung, she's she's thrown off what looks like it looks like the Pepsi Max ride from Blackpool. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> huge. The, the drop is massive, and the crunch of her neck and the sound effect. Listen, I'm not uh, I'm not advocating. You just start hanging women. It's not my not my thing. Are you just going to uh, just reiterate that that is not the official position of this podcast? It's not the official position of this podcast. Okay, just check. As far as I want something to grasp hold of, I want something to love in this film, this scene pulls me right back in. Thumbs up, Kenneth. Good stuff. I'm, I'm totally with you. This is a great change. He has. N- there's no consequence to Victor's actions at this yeah. point. Well, this is the thing. that the, the script made more sense on a, to make it more his fault. Um, by putting it in the hands of a baying mob, it takes it. It takes the responsibility off Victor a little, but the the trade off is that you actually get something happening in this film for one. I think overall it's a positive change, but but it's again execution. The execution, if you will pardon a terrible pun, is fudged. It doesn't um, it doesn't hit it doesn't hit home like so much stuff doesn't hit home. It's frustrating. The film's losing me a little bit. Well, now what, what do we do here? Do we barrel straight to them getting married, pretty much? Yeah, she's about to leave. Oh, no, no. I'll tell you what happens. The creature propositions him. <gasps> and that's when he, th- he throws him down the slippy slide. Oh, isn't it just... It reminded me of Beverly Hills Cop 3. You know, when he's in Wonder, Wonder World <laughs> yep. and he goes into an ice pit. And uh, it's such a set. It feels... Uh, you know, we've both yeah. been... You've been to Pinewood, haven't you? So we've both been to Pinewood. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a Pinewood set. They just chucked him down a little white tube. It's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, he comes out into the sea of ice and, and there Frankenstein sat down. And, and this is one of my problematic scenes because one, he articulates too much. And two, the sinister nature in which he describes the way he kills uh, his brother. Yep. Three, the reason why I've got a big problem with it, you're not even, you're not even shedding a tear for the little kid, Willie. There's nothing. He just accepts it like, oh, you snapped his neck, did you? Oh yeah, he's supposed to be like the 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 light of the whole family. He's supposed to be the the. He was the child that was born out of the death of his mother. Like, what is going on? There is nothing. It, it, explain it to me, Devlin. Explain to me why you would make this creative choice. I I'm making the assumption that it's because Victor's he's all out of love. He's all lost without him. <laughs> he's so lost. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say that that is a very generous reading and that's not in the film. If we have to start scrambling around down the back of the sofa for motivations, there are no motivations. But I'm going to get into some of the, the underhand stuff that we're being told, you know, the stuff that's probably not registering in your brain, but when you walk away, it's in there. So the creature's wants and needs is he wants a mate. Oh, I see, I see. Condense the creature down to the one motivation is that he wants a woman, a companion. I understand that he would want somebody, somebody to share his life with because he's because of loneliness. But he doesn't say that, Devlin. So the fact that he explains and articulates his his thoughts and feelings so much, the fact that he just goes straight for I want woman instead of I want to be loved. I want to feel love and feel that feel that emotion that you have deprived me. That would have been better than the the physical want and need of a companion because he says mate. He doesn't say companion and it's the choice of that word that really it, it jarred with me so much as as a uh, as an admitted boring Lisa Simpson leftist feminist i would i would agree with you uh i i would uh i would agree with you that um it's it's there because it's because it's in the book i'm not gonna i'm not gonna forgive it because it's in the book but i just think Uh, you're right like when when you're adapting a piece update it Mm -hmm. yeah um it but but it does but it does lead to probably the strongest sequence in the film we could have done with something better i'm I'm probably okay with this with this idea, that, but I think yeah, I think that the problem comes from like you say that, that he's so articulate. The creature is so articulate in some ways, inarticulate in others. It's an inconsistency that he can't express himself better than than he does. It's one of the many times when the writing just isn't smart enough, and it happens very frequently. Victor meeting up with Henry for the first time outside of the university. This is a, it's supposed to be like a verbal joust where they're initially kind of a little wary and Henry seems curious and Victor's supposed to be very defensive. And, you know, the whole, I am not mad. That's a really great opportunity for them to, to show some intellect and to, to have a verbal sparring contest. And they don't, it's just, it's lunk headed writing. Uh, same with every time Victor's on screen with Elizabeth. You would like them a lot more if they were clever with each other and they seem to have an internal life, like a kind of uh, a, a shared entertainment, a 
something. And it's yet another case where just the dialogue is too stupid for the themes. So we're going to go on. So he makes a proposition. He says, oh, okay, well, you create me a mate. And he says, Justine, no one, Justine, says, says the creature. Um, the book kind of at this point is all over the map. Uh, they actually retreat to the, um, I think, Orkneys or Shetlands, one of the two at this point. Um, and Victor does decide that he's going to uh, create a, a mate for the monster and then he destroys it in a fit of just, I don't want to make it anymore. Um, I like that in this, we bring Justine in and it's like, it's that that line, raw materials, nothing more. Like there's little moments where it's like, you're on the right track. You just couldn't do anything with it. You're absolutely right. If you're going to have Justine and she do nothing in the film other than this bit at the end, then I can forgive it. And I and and that this is the point that even though even though Victor agrees to make him a mate when it, when he gets confronted with the reality of of creating a, another creature out of somebody who he was very affectionate to and who clearly was in love with him and who he's now his he's destroyed and ended her life. Like I I get it. I get that there's a motivation that tracks. It's just that again, it just it doesn't read. It's not in the. It's not in the performance, so it's not on the screen. Creature propositions him. He's going to go away. He says he needs a month, so he gets yeah. Justine. He starts creating Justine. Elizabeth's going to leave him. He's like, oh, well, I need to, you know, I need to spend, I need a month, I need a month. And she's like, no, I'm not going to give you a month, I'm off. He then says, right, let's get married. Yeah. And then the creature grabs Victor and says, you made a promise. Because he did, he promised him he would do it. Uh, if you don't fulfill your promise, he says, uh, "I will have, I will have my wedding night, or I will be there at yours." Quite an explicit th- uh, threat. Yes, he chooses to do nothing with this, <laughs> and then he goes off on his, uh, goes off on a heavily armed honeymoon. Yeah, this is it. We're supposed to believe that the only reason why uh, he chose to ignore the monster's threat is because he's got a few armed men. He's just had, and at this point, is it not his dad is dead? His brother is dead. He doesn't know his dad's dead, but his dad is dead. Does he not know his dad's dead yet? No, he's uh, he's up in the home. Just checked out. Yeah, yeah, he's up in the up in the window. De Niro closes his eyes. It's all very tragic. So we go. He he doesn't he doesn't heed that threat. They get married. To uh, goes away on his honeymoon, which kind of just looks like the same set. Well, the 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 ferry's gone. That's it. They missed the ferry, it's... don't they? I love that. Yeah. I love that bit. Oh God, damn it! If the ferry had just <laughs> just stuck around for two more minutes, none of this would happen. So they go away. They miss the ferry. God damn it! And so they check into yep. check into some lodgings. It's a beautiful sunset at the ferry terminal, but then it starts absolutely hammering down. <laughs> Every time it rains and thunders, bad shit happens in the film. Bad shit. He's about to sleep with her. He says that horrible line about brother and sister, now man and wife. Oh, wow. I, you know, at that point, I had the creeps. I was thankful that I wasn't watching it with my girlfriend. The film, it's, it's weird that the film doesn't have the creeps about it. That weirds me out. Yeah. The film doesn't acknowledge that this is fucked up. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Oh, God. It's so, gives me the real creeps. Um, and then yeah. they're about to... He hears the flute, doesn't he? Yeah, he they're about to do the going. boink. 
and then the flute goes. And like every stupid cat, is he's straight out of Prometheus or Alien Covenant. He's like, I'm going to end this. Runs out. Yeah. I'm going to leave you here completely unguarded. You lock the door. You lock the wooden door. I'm going to give the film some credit. There is an ADR line that's like, we saw his. We saw him moving over there. He's gone into the woods. Lame. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's bad. They run off, and then De Niro does some sort of crazy jump jump trick because he's yeah at the window and the ceiling. He's above a netting. I thought it was a skylight, but then it can't be because if he plunged if he plunged through a skylight, they would be covered in like rain and leaves and wind, and they're not. So it seems that he's just hiding. It's a four-poster bed with a kind of netting across the top. And despite the fact that he is an enormous, stitched-together creature full of meat, mm-hmm. he can daintily sit atop this undetected for some time, an indeterminate amount of time, and then he can descend from it noiselessly within two seconds. I'm I'm back into the film at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Vic- Victor literally just like walks outside and then goes... Why am I outside? And then goes back in. I quite like the scene between De Niro and um, uh, Helena Bonham Carter. There's a tension there. And the the first time I saw it, I did think, is the creature going to assault her? Is the creature going to do the thing that Victor couldn't do? You know, cement the wedding night? I I, I genuinely thought that they were going to maybe... Well, listen, they've already gone down the incest route. Uh, I don't know what's going on in Branagh's mind. So I'm thinking that maybe that's going to happen. That's true. All bets are off. <laughs> All yeah. bets are off at this point. Apparently, the incest plot is also the romantic plot, so we're in. I tell you what, I didn't see coming. I didn't see the Mortal Kombat fatality. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does a Terminator on it. He just yeah. rips the heart out, and it's plunging as well. I bloody love that. And you know right. what I was saying before about Sam Raimi? Oh, the heart would have been bigger if it was Sam Raimi, and maybe little yeah. bits of purple blood would have been popping out. But either yeah. way, he rips Helena Bonham's Carter's heart out, ripping Victor's heart right out. And then I look—I do like it, and I love the way that I love the way that he just sort of dumps her off the bed, and she just smacks her head off. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, yeah, yeah, which then yeah tells that's brutal. About the burns and the scratches on her face, and yeah. So why why she has to be stitched up in the in the regeneration scene? Why she can't just be you know her? And uh, and Branna's like no, and the creature's like I keep my promises. It, it, it feels like and, a, a Papa John's he, advert. Yeah, and then he jumps out of a window like the MacGyver opening credit scene. <laughs> Immediately, uh, we get Victor like, right, I know what I need to do. I'm doing some stitching. Apparently, he's very, very, very close to his house because he's immediately back there. Which you would think, if that's the case, then surely he gets to decide when the ferry goes. He then is traveling up. The mate turns back up again. And he's just there to just be like, don't do it, Victor. I'm a, pl- I'm a plot contrivance. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm- I'm your conscience, damn it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's quite nice. I'm I'm in. I just, uh, again, how do you pronounce it? Is it Grand Guignol or Grand? Yeah, I'm going to say Grand Guignol. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. You know, this idea of like um, excess, like horror of excess. It's like 
Like um, like uh, like Sweeney Todd, like like Tim Burton Sweeney Todd, where it's like, screw it. This is great. Why can the whole film be like this? And yeah, and so he goes, or oh, help me out here. And yeah, yeah, chops. Ju- so is he chops her head off and puts it on Justine's body? Chops her head off. Or that's that's right, isn't it? Because we see Justine's head. So I made, I concluded yeah. that he chopped Elizabeth's head off and put it on. In a, oh, because she obviously she had a she had a giant ditch where her heart should be, so it would have been a lot. Whereas Justine was hung, so her neck would be screwed, but the rest of it would probably be okay. So Elizabeth has been reanimated. They have a little throwback dance. It's brilliant. It's good. It's a good and scene. I, now this is where I'm like, I think I'm supposed to be laughing at this point. Yeah, I'm supposed to be. Or actually, I don't know. I think it's supposed to be tragic and romantic. Oh God. Okay, I was laughing. But no, it's pretty funny. I thought Helena Bonham Carter was great. The way she's just sort of like flopping around. <laughs> and I'll give you. I'll give Branagh this in his performance. It was an earnest dance, and it made me giggle. This bit was, yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, I was. I was giddy at this point. I was like, yes, this is. This is. This is. This is. This is what this film needed. Yeah, this is all good stuff. And he's dancing yeah. around, but she doesn't quite remember. And I'm going to make a point on her look. I think she looks great. And you know how she becomes, mm. you know, we talked about her before, about where she was in her career, and she becomes this gothic queen and Tim Burton's wife and in every film, and she's always zany and crazy. It's definitely from this. I think... Yeah, I think you're right. I think she she's she's great at this point. She's great as reanimated Elizabeth. Could've, yeah. Could have done with more of this. With one little exception. Oh, Go on. Well, I mean, at, at this point, we have to go through the the thing of you know they they fight for her affections. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say it Victor, before that. It's that no, moment. no, no. There's 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 one little moment just before that, an amazing moment. But it's um, so the, De Niro shows up and demands his prize. Victor says, "She's not for you. She remembers." And they they try and coax her back across the room. This whole thing is 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 good. There's some stuff happening here. Like De Niro and her have got a weird moment between them, and then she kind of looks at herself and realizes what she is, and she's got this slow dawning realization that of what Victor has done to her. And he keeps trying to get her to say his name. Yep. And when she does, she's saying it in a kind of Victor, what have you done to me? And then they start arguing over it. And it's, you know, it's this very male, this kind of, she's my property. No, she's my property. And just after that, she gestures to the two of them. And I can't, because we're on a, we're on a, 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 unfortunately we're on audio only here. I can't do the thing that she does. She does this weird, like she gestures to both of them with this big sweeping arm. And it just made me think of like, if you were a, like a 10 year old at stage school and the teacher said, tell these two men you're annoyed at them without using words. It's like that. It's like this really obvious, like you are both terrible. And and it kind of uh, yeah, it's another one of those. I'm probably not supposed to find this funny. It is funny. I I'm going to defend her. Do it. And I'm I'm going to reach into the realms of generosity and say that she's 
she's new to this world and this is the this is the expression of of youth we've already talked about frankenstein and the way that he uh you know developed his emotional experience and his interaction with the world and it started off as as being like and then he became more articulate so i'm gonna give it i'm gonna give us some i just it just rings a bit i don't get me wrong i know exactly rings a little false no i know exactly what you mean it's another one of those it's almost like slaps a head yeah and it's like it's another one of those kind of near miss moments like yeah i totally know what was what was supposed to happen here you know before you were mentioning before about the the the, the pull between the two of them. I thought they were going to rip her arms off because at this point in Ooh. the film, because yeah. we're in dark comedy territory, Do it. I think we're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, they're going to rip her apart, and that would be great. Like one arm off, and then she has, and then she has to see her own arm like in front. Yeah, of her. I, I actually thought that that would have been a been a better way to go. Um, and then she would be like, I'm going to do what she does, which is that's. She, she destroys herself. Mm. Uh, I, I, I thought that's where they were going. That's a much better idea. Oh, thank you, buddy. Thank yeah. you. But, uh, you know, four years at film school. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, no, that's good, man. I like that. But yeah, it's great. So she sets herself alight. And then I didn't realize it, but Victor and all his mad science, he only bloody spilt lacquer all in the house. Oh, it didn't he just... Up. It blows it, up. It blows up like something in Die Hard. It's really <laughs> incredible. Every time like, this film just, takes... Everything just starts yeah. setting up. You know, you, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the scene in Alien 3. Fucking sets a light. And it's a, it's a really... Um, it's a really obvious model. But I love it. I love the way the models just set up I, a light. It's great. It's great. I'm, fine with, I'm fine with it up until the point the house not, literally explodes. Yeah, I mean, it does blow up. Um, it fully there's no up. need there's no need for it other than again it's, 19, watch the it's 1994 so stuff has to blow up and then devlin what happens next i i i'm confused i think he's like oh everything i loved is in a shallow grave and then and then we're back in the arctic i think um so so we're back so uh we've had a fire we've had an enormous explosion and then, and then he's off. He's off back to the rap, the end of the wraparound story. And obviously, it's been a very long story because he is absolutely fucked to the point that he is just going to die on a sofa. Not only is it anticlimactic, there there is nothing earned in the death because at this point in the film, I need the scene no. that tells me that Victor has learned something from all of this, and we don't get it. We do not get it. We get it through the captain's actions going going further, but what we don't get is we don't get Victor stating it clearly, either in dialogue or through performance. He just there's, there's a thing about you know, do you share my madness? And yeah, that 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 is the yeah, only it's... line, but that's not enough. It's not enough. No. It's also it's it's a bit ambiguous. Like it's it's, it's... Well, it's not just ambiguous. He's lost. The love of his life, his dad, yeah. definitely Ian Home is definitely dead at this point, right? Definitely dead. He's had his eyes closed in the way of the, in the way of movies. His eyes have been shut by somebody else, so he is dead. Yeah. He's lost his Willie. He's lost Justine, <laughs> which fair That's enough. A cheap gag, but I like it. <laughs> he didn't really care for Justine anyway. He's everyone in his life gone. 
Henry is uh, an emotional wreck on a staircase having a little cry. Who's possibly also dead. I don't know if he got up from that staircase. Maybe he just went with the house. He doesn't have that moment of either tragic redemption or or even contemplation for his actions. It just doesn't. It's just not there. And I wonder, is it cut? Has it been cut out of the film? Or was it was this the intention of the film the whole the whole time? That we would just follow Victor as our protagonist. And he didn't really do all that much wrong. It was all the monster's fault. While we were talking about uh, uh, Darabont and, and how Darabont saw his script versus how he saw his script represented on screen, I'm very sympathetic to Frank Darabont's position in this, in that when you read it, you can see that it's it's a difficult one because the script is written in such a way that there's probably only a couple of ways that you can put this on screen and it actually reads. It's very subtle. Mm. Well, we we know we were missed out. I, I know at this point, uh, was it ninety five mm. Shawshank or is it ninety four? I, I want to say the same, same year. You know, maybe 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 Darabont. Yeah, he's more famed for um, his adaptation of Stephen King, but he knows horror, and I think he would. You know, we <laughs> with within the time frame that we've talked about this film. We've talked very little about any of the horror elements because they're basically not there. There are none. It's not that you you don't need scares, um, but what you need is ideas, themes, characters, traits, tropes. You know, I'll come out with all the cliched words that you require to create any kind of genre film. This film has no real genre other than drama. Um it's not, it's not even, it's not, yeah, it's not dramatic. It's not even really a character study um, because, because the character doesn't, yeah, the character doesn't have a, he doesn't seem to have learned anything other than I was a fool. In conclusion, because I mean, the film is basically finished now, right? The, we come back, to, we come back to the arc. He sets, he sets fire to the, there's there's some ice cracking. People are running around. He sets fire to Frank to to Doctor Frankenstein and stands there with him and burns with him. And then the captain decides to turn it around and go home because fuck the Arctic. Well, I think we're supposed to be sympathetic to the creature at this point. Yeah, you know, he says, "Oh, he was, you know, why are you, why?" I think he say, "Why are you crying?" Or yeah. "Why are you here?" And he says, "Oh, he's my father." He's my father. And again, we we're supposed to feel that. Who, oh, I, I like the um, I, I like the again. It's another. I like the concept of this. Like, who are you? He never gave me a name. It's a good line. Yeah, that's pro- probably yeah, probably one of my favorite lines in the um, in the film. Yeah, doesn't really mean anything though. <laughs> no, exactly. Devlin, did you waste your time in the nineteen nineties watching Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? 20 odd times well this this is the key question that we ask about these films and i've got to say on this evidence just based on the film yes i wasted my youth on this film yeah it's it's not a good film it's it's a boring infuriating film in so many ways there's stuff to talk about and I guess I can thank it for uh, maybe later igniting some interest in classic horror, and in in uh, it, it probably encouraged me to go back and look into the 
the original Universal Monsters movies and to going and reading these books. And, you know, I grew up in, in sort of County Durham, North Yorkshire, so we're, we're not very far away from Whitby. So certainly Dracula was, was something that I was a little fascinated with in my in my youth and i think a lot of that comes back to watching bram stoker's dracula and mary shelley's frankenstein those two films in my head are very very closely linked just because as a kid you don't understand how how hollywood works you just assume that this is this is what films are so yeah uh but as a as a piece of cinema no it's a it's a piece of shit um how about you i know you didn't waste your youth on this but did you waste four hours of your last week? There are flourishes of of real creativity in Branagh's direction. Um, the just the odd shot, the odd scene. You know, we've already talked before about the the bridal scene. I yep. think it's great. The hanging, um, the little montages when he's doing the creation, the creation scene itself, which I think is. Is, is really bombastic and operatic and, and really engaging. Unfortunately, they are just flourishes in what is a two-hour film that feels like a four-hour film. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, did I waste my time? No, because I think it's one of those really interesting missteps. I think that's probably the best, that's probably the best way I can describe it. And if I'm generous, I would say that it's probably worth watching for people who are interested in the literature to see a different interpretation. Uh, one that I think most people who are familiar with Mary Shelley's work and also just gothic horror and those universal monsters, I would imagine most audiences in 2018 would not enjoy this film, partly because it really feels its length and the direction is quite stilted uh, for the for the biggest part. I'm going to say not recommend (laughs) if you want uh an interesting perspective on a mary shelley's frankenstein kind of story but you want something a bit meatier not even meaty you know what sillier more fun but also oddly more intelligent um watch uh reanimator and bride of reanimator which, which I know is a is a love ostensibly a Lovecraft adaptation, but certainly Bride of Reanimator is, you know, it's just it's chaos. It's fascinating, hilarious chaos. Good man. Right then. So what we do at the end of each episode is we reveal next episode. So Devlin's choice was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Devlin, would you like to know what my choice is for? for the next episode. I absolutely cannot wait. Okay. What are we watching? So, we are going to watch Scarface. Uh, I'm very intrigued by this because uh, Scarface, like you say, it casts a, a big shadow pop culturally. It's all the rappers' favorite film ever. I'm, You know, I'm, I'm into it because you, you want a weird admission? Never seen the whole film. Wow. Well, that is interesting. It was the other reason why I picked it, because I know that probably out of the two of us, I know that I would have seen it more times than you. But to know that you've actually yep. not seen it all, interesting. So there you go. Yeah. So the next episode will be Scarface. Uh, unfortunately, I apologize, Devon. I picked another film that's over two hours long, so podcast is probably going to be like five hours. But I don't know why we do this to ourselves. I don't either. 
We do it. Because we enjoy it. We will see you. Same podcast. Same time. This is Gally <laughs> signing out. And Devlin also signing out. And we'll see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, everybody. I have a small favor to ask. Could you please leave a rating and perhaps a review of the podcast, wherever it is that you've downloaded this episode from? Also, check out the website, therewindmoviepodcast.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the films that we review, so please send us a message on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. <laughs>